Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Let's get to it, guys. Did you watch? How much did you watch? What did you learn? What stood out? Will this lead to charges against Trump? And and most importantly, did you find yourself saying the things you never thought you'd say? Like, I thought Ivanka was the most interesting part. I know, right? Who could have known that the Obama years were America's Weimar Republic? You know, I would have spent more time in cabarets. Last night's House Select Committee hearings on the January 6, 2021 terrorism attack on the Capitol had a lot of highlights. Bill Barr calling Trump's stolen election narrative bullshit. Uh, Ivanka using the Elsa, the queen from Frozen filter. Uh, Jared proving once again he is the biggest, douchiest douche in all of douchedom. And that's just the stuff that's fun and not terrifying. As Peter Baker said on page A1 of today's New York Times, in the entire 246-year history of the United States, there was surely never a more damning indictment presented against an American president than outlined on Thursday night in a cavernous congressional hearing room where the future of democracy felt on the line. How effective was it? Well, get ready for a full summer of Hunter Biden stories. Holy shit, Hunter Biden is coming for your virgin daughters and Fox News is here to tell you about it. We found out that Donald Trump was told the election nonsense was bullshit. We already knew that Donald Trump had told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, which gave them a big membership boost. But we found out again, Donald Trump summoned the mob, lit the flame and planned an attack on American democracy. We were reminded That Trump tried to install loyalist wing monkey flunkies at the Justice Department so they would support his fake election lies. We were reminded again that Trump prodded state election officials to change the election results. We were reminded that Trump's evil team of lawyers, holy shit, his evil team of lawyers. In the next Marvel Avengers movie, Thanos is going to hire Rudy Giuliani and it's going to be over in 20 minutes. They instructed Republicans in multiple states to create false electoral slates and transmit those slates to Congress and the National Archive. We found out that Trump totally, 
blatantly ignored pleas for assistance from his team, and he deliberately failed to take action to stop the violence. And we even found out that Mark Meadows, who is the hero of this whole thing for delivering binders full of smoking guns, you idiot, you had all the texts and then you gave them and then you sued them to make it look to the magas like you didn't want to cooperate, but it was too late, you moron. He tried to convince the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to just say that Trump did something helpful during the attack but never actually requested any help from the National Guard or anyone else. But we found out Mike Pence really did. What Pence tried to do something. And we found, and you know how much I hate defending Mike Pence? You know how much I hate defending? He, 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 he looks like Rolf from Sound of Music, all grown up in the old Nazi. We, I mean, Mike Pence is all the evil, twice the religious hypocrisy, and half the comedy value. And we found out that when the attackers were chanting, hang Mike Pence, Trump responded, maybe our supporters had the right idea. And Trump's response to all of this, I did not support hanging Mike Pence. Guys, it appears the Republican Party is spooked because they can't stop talking about how meaningless and pointless it all was. Here is Steve Scalise, white supremacist, homophobe, wanted mentally ill people to get their hands on guns. And then what happened? A mentally ill person shot him and his life was saved by a black female lesbian cop wanting to prosecute the committee for the crime of good production values. A1. Who paid this Hollywood producer? Because it's against the law to use taxpayer funds to produce a documentary uh, trying to promote their political agenda or go after their political opponents. And we haven't really heard an answer. You know, who paid this guy? We know who he is. He not only produced this video, he also supposedly covered up for Jeffrey Epstein. You know, so he's got his own track record. But how did he get paid? Because uh, he's not allowed to get taxpayer money to get paid. And if you did it for free, that's an in-kind contribution, which is also Mm. illegal. So I think the question of who did pay him and how much did he get paid and how did that transaction even occur is an interesting question because there may be violations of law. Never mind that the Trump White House and Fox News were a living game of Red Rover, Red Rover, send this one on over and trade them back and forth. And and by the way, Donald Trump really loves the idea of investigating everybody who ever spent time with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, they were eviscerated, all these Republicans, by the testimony, by the statements. Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney had a brutal takedown. How brutal? How br- Every liberal I know is praising Liz Cheney. We're in the upside down, people. Liz Cheney. Dick Cheney killed a million people for a lie. Liz Cheney is killing her own career for the truth. I saw a friend today I've known since I was a kid, and he was like, I'll tell you, I- I'd vote for her. I'd vote for her. She, te- she tells the truth. And I was like, she wants to put women who have abortions in jail. I- I- I'd vote for her. She thinks climate science is a myth. Uh, well, well, uh, uh, she-, she still defends the Iraq war. No, no. Look, she's, she's like Dick Cheney. If Dick Cheney told the truth about one thing. Oh, we also found out Scott Perry, congressman from Pennsylvania, was involved in efforts to install Trump flunkies at the Justice Department to overturn the election. We found out he contacted the White House after the terrorist attack to seek a presidential pardon. He has refused to comply with the subpoena. His office denied the Cheney's claim Thursday night. More Hunter Biden stories are coming because they're all saying, oh, we got it. We, 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 it's all lies. It's all lies. But let's not investigate it. And it's official. Massive ratings. 
the one thing that matters in our country, the one thing that determines truth. Massive. The one thing Donald Trump cares about now that he's not going to try to sleep with his daughter anymore. Massive ratings for the first night. And it, 20 million we know of. That doesn't include the millions who watched on streaming platforms. 20 million viewers across the more than the impeachment, more than the Comey hearings. Once again, Donald Trump is ratings crack. But what he doesn't understand is it's hate watching, Donald. You are the true detective season two of American politics. Here's Congressman Tim Burchett from Tennessee. Burchett, yeah, had nothing substantive to complain about the hearing. So he, too, criticized the production value. Oh, how I loves me some media critics in Congress. It's not a hearing, ma'am. There's in a hearing you allow you allow folks to come in and speak on all sides. This was an orchestrated event. Um, you know it. I know it. You have ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN blocked off all this time for it. An ABC executive was hired with taxpayer money to produce it. Um, you know, I, I was, I'm not surprised you didn't have a uh, an opening intro song with the thing um, because this thing has just been produced. To, Donald Trump literally hired Bill Shine away from Fox News to produce everything he did on camera in the White House. And when you hear these complaints, remember, this was the Republicans' choice to have a committee like this. They voted against a bipartisan commission where they would have had equal say. They wouldn't do it, remember? So then they set this up instead, and McCarthy consciously chose to not cooperate when Pelosi wouldn't allow Jim Jordan and Jim Banks from serving on the panel. These were choices the Republicans made. They built this. And recent CBS polling finds that 56% of Republicans now alarmingly view the January 6th terrorist attack as defending freedom. 56% of the Republicans, which when you think about it, Republicans are about 27% of the population. So guys, we're, we're talking about a good solid 15 to 16% of all America. They just happen to be the loudest and most well-organized. And these are not like the Republicans we grew up with. They're louder, they're meaner, they're dumber. I call them the illiterati. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
So Bruce McCullough is best known for his sketch comedy work with Kids in the Hall and uh, for writing and or directing movies like Dog Park, Superstar, Stealing Harvard, which he also completely steals as a film in his cameo performance as a very bad lawyer. Uh, He's known for his directing work on shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Schitt's Creek, Trailer Park Boys and Tall Boys, which you can see here in the States on, on Fuse. But his solo show. Bruce McCullough, Tales of Bravery and Stupidity, is running in New York City at Soho Playhouse through June 12th. And I can't recommend it highly enough as someone who loves great comedy and great solo theater. The show is part monology, part stand-up, part poetry, part music. It, it is a punk rock aesthetic with the soul of a poet. It manages to be both a love letter to gallows humor and a love letter to life and hope itself. We just had him on with his bandmates. It is really a pleasure to welcome Bruce McCullough by himself. Hello. Wow. I'm, I'm going to try to live up to that flowery intro. <laughs> well, I, I honestly, I, I, I mean it because I, I've done a lot of solo theater. I've seen a lot of solo theater. And I love your format. It, the show begins as sort of stand-up under red lights and and ideas are introduced in wonderfully random one-off ways, but they wind up paying off later in the show. And there are so many unexpectedly lovely moments that in no way tamper down the dark irreverence of so much of it. How is it for you just being in a room with people again? Well, you can, having seen the show, you can tell I'm tender. I mean, I think I'm funny as fuck, but I'm tender. And, you know, I do feel like we're at a time in the world where we kind of need each other. We need to communicate with each other. But part of that is not just political correctness or or something. It's looking over and seeing each other. And it's, you know, it's about the profundity of life, but also not taking it too seriously. I, I was really glad that the show was not strictly autobiographical, personal, and then I did this. Like, I, I was so glad it wasn't full of showbiz stories. Um, there's times when I've, I've seen interviews where I literally think you've spent more time answering questions about your time writing for SNL than you spent time writing for SNL. I, I think in many ways, <laughs> this was more biographical because it showed you and your heart and your mind than if it was just you telling stories about your business. Yeah, well, and also the the presumption I make in this, and of course you notice that as I say, those of you who have been dragged here by your 43-year-old nerd boyfriends may not know me. And the most important part of that is it doesn't matter. This show is not about me. It's about us. You know, in the same way when I was doing stand-up as a young young man, you walk to Hamilton or Ottawa or wherever, and they're just going to respond to what it is. And actually being known sometimes can be a bit of a baggage. Yeah, um, it's one of the reasons I stopped doing stand up. You know, when the show hit, I go, they go, Bruce. And it's like, oh, no, I want to be weird. I don't want you to know who I am or whatever. So the presumption I make is that you obviously some people know me, but this is, a, I think, a show for me right now for the world or for theater fans or just people who are not afraid to a laugh and be really kind of be vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, kids in the hall are always in the room. There's a few references. At one point, you you make reference to my pen and half the crowd goes crazy. But you're right. The show completely stands on its own. And and I I can't wait to speak to people who don't know you from that, who come to see this. I I have this theory about the things that destroy solo theater. Um, One is uh, therapy on stage, disguised as theater. Uh, One is a stand-up act with a a couch instead of a microphone disguised as theater. And one is 
political propaganda disguised as theater. And I'm curious, going into this, you've done solo shows before, but who who inspires you in terms of monology? What was your inspiration in coming in to create this new piece? Well, people you wouldn't know, Andy Jones of Codco out of uh, Newfoundland, you know, one of the greatest one-person shows I ever saw. He's just sitting there and he goes, he's just staring at the audience for a minute and then a smoke bomb goes off. He goes, oh, uh, the director thought something should happen now. And... And then, and then he did this thing where he brought out a bulletin board and he said, I'm going to count my laughs. And people laugh. He goes, one. He just stares at him, two. And literally he would go on for a hundred laughs. But then, of course, he told a story about that he can never run again because he had to run home on news that his mother died. And I thought, if you can do that, that's so beautiful. You know, I love Spalding Gray. For me, maybe it was kind of similar to itself as it went, but I, I did love that you could t- the idea that you could take your time. Um, obviously, David Sedaris is amazing. I haven't seen him yeah. live. Uh, he's a writer who's reading his stuff. I want to be a person who, can, who dances and lays it down a little bit more. Um, but I do like just communing with ideas as well. Well, it really is about the shared experience and you really take the time to make sure the audience knows you're not just up there orating, but that they are a participant in this. And it was really fun for me to see how much you were enjoying the audience responding to what you were giving them. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the misnomer with a one person show is that it's one person. It isn't. (laughs) It's two people, you um, and this audience, which has its own personality, its own no go zones. It's no, it's own. I'm delighted by that throwaway tonight their own personality. So you're actually um, kind of on a theatrical, uh, emotional date with, with people you've never met. Yeah. I want to commend you for the gallows humor and for, uh, I think, the, the soul-enriching therapy that comes from it. Um, Hemingway said, happiness among intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. And there are so many beautiful moments in the show where you say one of your early lines is, you know, what's amazing. Low grade depression. That's fucking great. <laughs> are you ever surprised at how strongly people respond to that joke? How, how just acknowledging the malaise that exists in the hearts of so many of us is a universal that we just don't give ourselves permission to ever laugh at? Well, I think it's now, you know, I did some shows in Vancouver <clears throat> when the, uh, lock, the first wave window after the lockdown. And I talked even less about, I never mentioned really COVID, but people were literally crying. And part part of it was just to be out, to realize that we've survived. And the thing I've, I've learned slowly in my long career is you can just say something like, can't we be um, easier on ourselves? We've been through something and not to get cheap applause or anything. And so, yes, um, I don't know if it was the show you were at or, or another one is like there was like four gasps from people going like they recognize some of the, you know, and listen, I'll put something, a line example, you know, ever get so lonely you have, you go to the dentist just to be touched. Yeah. Um, Obviously at least a B joke. um, And obviously an emotional component to it. And people go, they laugh and then they go, Oh, (laughs) you know, but I mean, I think that's, that's it, right? Like the, the first time I ever saw George Carlin live, he did what no artist had ever done. He, he made me feel less alone. And I think that that whole notion of turning pain into gold is what separates artists from entertainers. 
And so much of this show is about not just pain, but the beauty that can come from letting yourself feel it. I mean, when you talk about families alone, you know, just you, you say it can be very lonely in a family. A family is something you survive, a tyrannical clutch of people who look like you. I, I, I think that's part of the shared experience. I mean, you can call it gallows humor, but has it always appealed to you to, to go to places of pain and find, okay, how can I find joy or at least entertainment value from darkness? Well, I mean, the rhythmic thing I love, which is, and as you're, you sort of rightly said, the show starts, you know, it's a um, kind of a magic trick, I hope. It starts as a, it feels like a stand-up show, and then it becomes a theater show at the end. But I've, I've no, I, I, I've always, it's one of the first cops I wrote from our show, you know, where a guy comes and screams in my face, love me, love me, love me. And then I just turn to the camera and say, I wonder what he wanted. Like, why is that a laugh every time we ever did that? And I think, you know, I don't know. Maybe I haven't seen enough stuff, but it's it feels like it's rare to be able to be kind of that in the belly of the beast and be getting laughs. Like not just one or the other. And that's the stuff I write. I'm not I'm not analyzing it before I write it, but it's I think I do. I want to talk about the human experience. I don't want to talk about Bruce McCullough and then he met Lauren Michaels. You know? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I like I, I thank you, because if it had been a show where, you, oh, here's the story of when Lauren came up to Toronto to see the kids live, I'm sure it would have been very funny, but it wouldn't have been very special. And and in many ways, I, I found your love of punk rock coming through in so much of the work, because to me, punk was much the same thing, taking anguish, taking pain, taking isolation, uh, taking alienation. And then verse, chorus, verse, making you want to dance to to it. Well, without question. And I think the thing that is lost with a lot of punk music um, is how how melodic and vulnerable a lot of it is. When you think of a band like the Feelies or the Buzzcocks, it's just beautiful, you know, and yeah. that is evergreen. My my daughter, she does her playlist when I drive her to school. She's got Yola Tango on there. She's got Velvet Underground on, on there. She doesn't know that I know those bands. She thinks they're her bands. And because, or Nick Cave, I think pain never goes away. I think looking at your pain never goes away. Pop rock ages poorly, but I don't yeah. think true, true, you know, looking at the abyss um, and, and, and getting through it, uh, I don't think that ages. I agree. I mean, so much of punk, thinking of the Buzzcocks or even Sex Pistols, it's like great 1950s rock songs it's just the exuberance of it and the simplicity the three chords verse chorus e even even i want to hold your hand which is very much a pop song but it's just raggedy loud and 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 uh overwhelmingly exciting well and i think it's vulnerable and that's the stuff i went toward like the dills you know out of the west coast it's like this is so beautiful and it also rocks so hard I don't know. It's an, and I think that is a jagged. Did you use the word jagged? And I just yeah. stole it. Yeah. It's okay. There is, there is a thing. It's not about perfect. It's, it's emotional and the construction isn't perfect. You know, yeah. I had a, had a director once who said, it's not about making a perfect thing. It's about making a really good thing. I mean, that's, that makes me think of hip hop because there is so much of that in hip hop. And yet so much of hip hop falls into the pop trap, much like country music. I think country and hip hop are two uniquely American art forms that both came out of pain and poverty. 
And they both wound up becoming big enough that a lot of it just got watered down for the commercial mass production. Yeah, no, I do think, and I'm I'm a huge fan of those. But no, listen, my 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 son introduced me. I didn't realize Kanye West was a genius until yeah. about a year and a half ago. Like a genius, yeah. you know. And this is this is the disconnect that we're doing culturally. He's he's doing silly things in his real life. If I only knew his music and barely knew his life, you know, with my show, you don't really know me. You think you might know Bruce from TV from some of his weird things. I don't want you to know, you know. It must be hard to be, you know, dating Kim Kardashian and trying to be have a valuable comedy career. I don't want yeah. people to know about me. I just want to because I, I, I care about me, my humanity. I don't care about, you know, <laughs> my house or the people I know or whatever. I, I busted myself for for uh, that, that wasn't the show you, you saw when I said I like the lull. Bill Burr can't handle the lull. And then I said, oh, great. He named rock. Bill Burr. Like, I, I'm just having a conversation with that in some esoteric way as I'm, you know, waiting to sip my water for the next, you know, for the next piece. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you about Kanye. And right now, like Dylan, he seems to be in his evangelical fervor phase. But, um, I, you know, I thought about Dylan doing Sinatra records when I saw your show. I really did. Because I thought uh, Dylan, the very songs he chooses to sing tell us a lot about him and where he's at right now. And so I thought a lot of the bits you chose to do, even if they weren't directly about your life, gave us insight into your heart and into your mind in ways that, you know, and then I did this kind of stories uh, wouldn't do. And, and I say that because I'm going to ask about a real story you tell. Um, okay. you, you share a very personal story about a romantic getaway with your wife that goes awry. And again, it's much more funny and revealing than any industry stories you, you could tell. But I'm curious about that particular story. It's very, very funny. It's it's very awkward and unpleasant. How does your wife feel about it? And and is she someone you can work out material with? I don't work out material with her. Like, I remember, you know, what, part of the backbone of this show is a story about my friendship with Gord Downey. Yes. And she came, she came to Calgary and I was just doing this show and I just started doing this stuff. And she was dripping tears. It was like, she said, I never thought in a million years you would do that story. But she, you know, part of being an artist and an artist, she's an artist as well. She's a great actor um, and a poet and reads the artist's way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you got to be up for it, right? You got to be up for it. And I think with all those stories and, and maybe all this, things that I'm talking about happened. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the bad guy. And also I tell kind of a, a silly sh story that could be in a lot of shows, but for me, it lands with us emotionally um, thinking that we can get through what the problems in our, in our lives together. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you talk about couples counseling and sitting in that couch and it's amazing how much universality you you get from it. Uh, I'm curious what your what your wife thought uh, when she first saw these bits. Um, you know, she'll point out the smallest thing that wasn't quite true or exaggerated as proof that none of it happened. But of course, most of it happened. Um, I, I she gets it. I mean, she's my partner, so she gets. It. Yeah. Have your kids seen the show? No, you know, it's, it's funny, the director's daughter, who's even younger than my daughter, my daughter's 17, she could come. Uh, I didn't, I don't think, I think my kids would be traumatized by some of the, you know, talking about their, their mom shaving her vagina. Yeah. 
and and so and they, they, they like they yeah I, I think i think they're not ready yet we introduced them slowly my son quite likes kids in the hall my daughter reluctantly likes it but i have made kids in the hall not a conversation in our house yeah you know if if i tell you know i like i threw threw off the idea my son we're talking about something it's like yeah no i did a pilot with kevin hart and bill burr you know those guys well what am i supposed to do come and tell you come and name drop my own kids so (laughs) the rule has been we don't talk about show business we don't you know i had a good day i had a bad day i got to fly to new york or whatever but the oeuvre of the kids in the hall is of no use in my family home yeah of course of course i mean it'll come in handy someday but yeah it's not there yet yeah I love the music in the show and I love the original music and the songs and the poem set to music. I know your dad was a, a real jazz cat bass player. How do you produce the original music in the show? Is that you playing or do you have musicians you use? No, no. A lot of it is done. Uh, most of it by Craig, Craig Northy, who's our producer or my go-to composer who did tall boys and does kids in the hall and did brain candy. So no, I will, I will go. I need a, a rip of uh, Simon Garfunkel's, uh, song and, and, and I need it kind of this afternoon. Cause I just thought of it and say, okay, brother. Okay. Got it. And then it, a file comes and it's perfect. Or he'll give me three versions and the first one's perfect. Do you so bring him melodies? That, like do you bring him melodies or, or lyrics or, or the, do you compose together? Sometimes. Like to get the, yeah. I mean, you know, we wrote parents house over zoom in 12 seconds, which is a little <laughs> half song that we do uh, in the show. Like the kids in the hall, he's my creative equal, as is Brian Conley from The Shadowy Man, who does a lot of stuff with me. And I'm actually doing shows in Toronto with him uh, in a couple of weeks. But we, we just get it. And sometimes, you know, I, I said, I said uh, parents' house, here's the lyrics. It kind of feels like lost in the supermarket. Right. But don't let it feel like we cop lost in the supermarket. And then what comes out isn't lost in the supermarket, but we both know it kind of is. I think I, I mentioned to you when we first met what a big fan I was of the Shame Based Man album and how when I first moved to L.A., listening to Heroin Pig and did all my acid in grade eight, you know, got me through some uh, some tough Hollywood days. And and one of the unexpected heroes musically of this show is Bob Seger. And I'm curious your, your thoughts on this. At, at what point does something become hip? Well, I, I got to say that Bob Seger is hip. And yeah. I think he always was. I, I dined out on his music before punk took me away. You know, I come from Cowboys. I come from Alberta. And so the Cowboys you're scared of. I didn't really like country music until I was in my 30s because I was just scared. And how amazing is George Jones and Johnny Cash? Yeah, you know? yeah. There's a, there's a line in my book. The first thing I thought when my dad died is I never saw Johnny Cash live. But I think Bob Seger I didn't under like I liked him at first, but then he was a cowboy, so I got scared of him. You know, I'm not. I wasn't scared of T Rex. I loved T Rex, but I was scared of uh, of uh, Bob Seger. But his music was important to me. I remember my friend Ken Mackay and I w- would go in his '64 Nova, and he would play. Speaking of dark humor, he would play fights that his parents had on a cassette taper that he would record, um, you know, savage fights where they'd almost leave each other every night. And then we'd um, then we listen to some Seeger. We'd listen to Night Moves, you know, one yeah. of my greatest memories. Um, and so, yeah. And I think because he also I feel like I'm a blues man. I feel like he's the same. He's, you know, just yeah. keeps going. <laughs> 
Um, and so it's easy. You no, know, I make a joke about Coldplay in the show. Anyone could do that. But Seeger is kind of, he's good too, because he means oh, yeah. it. I think uh, old time rock and roll becoming so big sort of distorted how the culture viewed him as a, more of a pop artist than a soul singer, which is really what he is. Well, he is a soul singer. And that, that I, I dined out on that live album, that double live album of his, when it, yeah. you know, probably when it first came out. And you're right. A big hit can ruin somebody. Um, and I think it did because that song, song still makes me depressed. Old time wrong. <laughs> you know, because I do think of, you know, I, I referenced the small dance floor dancing, but that really like anytime I was ever in a bar or tools or whatever, and that was playing or at a party, I just just wanted to leave. You were here with the other four guys a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was really thinking the documentary about kids in the hall, comedy punks, it, it makes a fine double feature with Peter Jackson's Get Back movie about the Beatles in terms of the personalities uh, that come together and don't always jive, but they they do make great art. And it, it's really weird as I've watched the press tour for the wonderful new season of Kids in the Hall on Amazon Prime. I. I uh, have there been any interviews that haven't asked you guys about fighting? It just seems like you guys get asked about the fights all the time. That's sort of become woven into the lore of the group. Yeah. And like you say, I've probably been asked, I've probably had less fights than have been asked about fights. I, I think that's the punk part too, not the kind part um, that, and maybe we talked about it early on. So it's people picked it up. Um, I think, I think as young men from mostly uh, broken homes with with drunk dads and stepmoms. Um, I think you're, we were not taught to behave, and I think you know you don't know that you can't yell at someone because you're seen so important that if they got the wrong fucking prop, didn't we talk about this, man? Um, I, my journey has to been to understand that everyone's a person and they need to be validated and they need to be part of the team, and um, so the fights were about us getting our way. The fights weren't like, we never had a fight about money. We never right. had a fight about who got a bigger office. It was if something should be in the show or not. And we were taught self-taught to fight to the death um, until we realized as we moved out into the rest of the actual industry that you don't do that. You know, yeah. does it surprise you to see that sketches like sausages, which was so divisive at the time, has just become such a touchstone for people. I mean, everywhere I go, people just quote that sketch all the time. And I didn't know until I saw the film how contentious it had been. Well, yes. And I do feel like that's kind of the power of the group is, you know, ever so often, it's like, Shitty Soup, is that a good sketch, Dave? Kevin, do you want to do it? You can do it. But now I watch it and I just laugh my head off. And I think part of it is, is all of us protecting what we thought was our work or what the show needed. And if they do a vaudevillian sketch, I'd want to do a weirder sketch, I think, which is both stupid and smart because it protects yeah. the different things in the show. Um, but I do I do really love comedy where you're not you don't know why it's funny and it's funny. You know, in the new show, I, I have a scene where I drive down the a lazy boy down the street at 30 yeah. miles an hour. Like, I just know that's going to be funny. I don't know why. Um, but Love and Sausage. Yeah, of course. And also. There's not one joke in it. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I, I think we have to be leery a bit of style. And I probably went too far with style and some of those when I was thinking I wanted to become a filmmaker. 
Um, but it's, it's kind of good to be taken to different worlds in, in a sketch, you know, and I think that I mean, that. yeah, it's, it's, it's Dr. Seussian and it doesn't have to have, have jokes in it. There's so many great examples of that in kids in the hall and, and in Python as well. Um, I, I want to ask you one more thing and I'm grateful for your time today. You know, I've always thought if the Beatles had just gotten together in the seventies with Billy Preston, just to do live dates that they probably could have had a good time. If they just gone out on the road and had Billy there so they'd behave, they, they probably could have rediscovered some of what made them work well together. And I'm so moved by the fact that over the years, you guys have done live readings of the script to Brain Candy because there's so many good ideas in that film and so much of it holds up and was ahead of its time. And I'm curious, has going back to that property and giving it new life in front of a live audience has that been a healing experience or at least a, a creatively revitalizing experience? Well, I think it actually has been a healing experience because, <clears throat> you know, we let, we, you know, we, we lost, you know, and part of that isn't in the documentary is part of our stubbornness of me keeping cancer boy in brain candy. Right. It's just like, yeah. no, and they could all our advertising money. But I think once we started doing some live uh, shows, a couple of which Gore Downey did, did his songs and some other stuff. We were revisiting our sort of saddest, darkest hour. And it was, there was, you know, personal issues with a lot of the, uh, the lives of the troop and the troop itself at that time. And I think the fact that we could jump through that fiery sort of sweaty pussy hoop and, and get through that really did help us move to some of the other stuff that we did. And, um, I think there was a tour after that. And then out of that, it was like, well, I guess we should do a sketch show again. Again, you don't need to know Kids in the Hall to love this show and laugh. And you don't need to know Tragically Hipper Gord Downey to weep at the uh, transcendent beauty of the final act. The show is Bruce McCullough, Tales of Bravery and Stupidity at the Soho Playhouse through June 12th. Thank you so much for coming here and talking about your process. It really is a pleasure to, to talk with you about how you create these wonderful things. And I'm, I'm grateful for the time. Thank you. I don't want to creep you out, but I'm starting to consider you a friend. Oh my. Okay. I'm <laughs> really happy to be weird. If you want at any point, I'll come over. <laughs> Have a great Thank one. You. Yeah. Thank you. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John Fuglesang, joined by comedians Adam Sank and Eric Branstein. Adam, before we move any further, you do something on Facebook every day that I think people need to know about. <laughs> 
You don't just unfriend people, you shed them as a healthy habit. Yes, Explain this is a is daily ritual called daily birthday unfriending. And why is it called that? <laughs> Hashtag daily birthday unfriending. So every, you know how every day Facebook tells you which of your Facebook friends have birthdays that day. <laughs> I go through the list and if there's a name that is not instantly recognizable to me, I click on their profile. I figure out who they are. I try to remember why I'm connected to them. And then I click on see friendship. If when I do that, we do not have uh, interactions, you know, in the last 10 years. And if especially if they don't follow the Adam Sank show page on Facebook, <laughs> then I unfriend them. But I also after I unfriend them, I post. You do a ritual. I do. I do a sort of a little description, a little essay about who I'm unfriending and why. I don't say their name, but I'll be like. You're a woman who was supposed to do my comedy show at therapy in 2007, but ended up canceling at the last minute. Then, da, 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 and they're, they're like funny little anecdotes. That's funny. For some reason, they are wildly popular. These get more likes and interactions than anything else I post. And uh, so if you're interested, you can go to my personal page. They're all public. Uh, Adam Sank on Facebook and uh, and just type in daily birthday unfriending. There's also a daily birthday unfriending FAQ page because people are always asking, what is this? Why are you doing this? Why did you become friends with these people in the first place? So all is explained in the I FAQ. I so enjoy reading this. I'm curious, has anyone ever written to you and said, hey, listen, I'm sorry I didn't maintain the friendship with you. Would you refriend me? Can I have another yes, chance? Once or twice. Well, I've gotten those where it's like, hey, I'm sorry I, I'm never on Facebook or I never comment, but I really do like your page can you there's a lot of those if it's like that then i'll sometimes refriend them but the other ones i get are like fuck you you piece of shit <laughs> like i don't fucking care about your fucking adam's thanks like they, they get really offended wow. and i'm like i don't know and you. you never use their We've name never when you, met, you never, never use, their, use name. their name but all the posts are public and i don't block people when i unfriend them so they can still see my posts ah and if so it's your birthday you. if it's your birthday and you know that i do this then you go to my page on your birthday to see if we're still <laughs> friends well then motherfucker should start liking your posts that's more. what i'm saying if you follow the adam sancho page i will never unlike you or unfriend you ever i love I it i think it's very fair yeah Eric, do you have any empowering social media tips? No, I, I'm kind of <laughs> impressed by that. And the only thing, I'm barely on Facebook anymore. Once in a while, on my birthday, there'll always be someone who wishes me happy birthday. That's the only contact I'll have them for the whole year. Like, I'll, I'll go down the, the DMs and they'll be like, happy birthday, happy birthday, year after year. But I never speak to any of them. Yeah. You, you ever have any of that or no? Well, I am on Facebook a lot. You I'm are. probably on Facebook more than I'm on any other platform because I'm fucking old. I'm 51 and it's still like the it's my generation's social media platform. Um, but also comedians don't use this for socializing. Comedians use this to promote their work. Like or just because I have a thought that I think is witty that I want to share. That's the right. same thing. You yeah. still get like a lot of likes and everything? Yeah. Okay. Not on my page. My the algorithms are such that your your official Facebook page gets nothing. But your personal page if if it's oh, not like started. unless it's like come see me on John Fugel's or come listen to me on John Fugel's saying show that gets nothing. My because Facebook, they know it's a promo. My Facebook fan page has 320,000 followers and I have not wow. had control of it since the 2nd of June 2021. It was hacked. And oh we have no, I'm always tagging it. So many channels. We have talked, I have used inside channels to Facebook of people I know who are VPs. 
I have written, I've done all the tickets. I've uh, The sexy liberal tour is written on my behalf. The guy who is killing me for the insurance money who runs this show has done it. We have tried so many. I, I, I get offers from hackers every day. They were posting vulgar, horrible videos on my page for a year. Then Facebook finally got that to stop. They threw them off, but they haven't put any of the administrators I want to see on. the vulgar, horrible videos. <laughs> Some of them might still be up, but like, like I spent 10 years building up 300,000 followers. Yeah, that thing, sucks, John. And I have not been able to use it for a year. And it's got a fucking blue check mark. And I keep thinking, this. you put the blue check mark on right. me, Facebook. Doesn't Don't you care? Something? It's not verified anymore. I get banned from Facebook constantly. Oh, really? Like suspended for a week or a month because I'll quote something from the Howard Stern show in a Howard Stern show fan group I where see. everyone un- gets the reference, but it looks like I'm calling someone the C word or something. Right. So, so they, they'll just say like you're blocked for a month and, and I appeal and they go re- appeal rejected. It's a horrible platform. I, I hate Facebook, but I can't break that habit. I wish I could quit them. Uh, hey, let's go to the phones. Ron in California. You had a question for Adam? Uh, yes, I do, John. And good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is the same Adam Sank that used to do Derek and Romaine years and years ago, correct? Yes, the very same. Oh, Adam, you, I mean, you still are hilarious, but the way you would vibe with Derek and Romaine was just fantastic. I just got in the car, John, and got the show on. Uh, as always, you were fabulous on Mama's show this morning. Thank you. I'm trying to and, vibe with Adam, but the, the groupies <laughs> haven't kicked in yet. <laughs> well, well I, you know... I know you guys need social media because of what you do. I gave it up years ago. Best thing I ever did. Yeah. That's very sweet, John. You know, I used to, whenever I would go on Derek and Romaine, I would do my Maya Angelou impression. <laughs> but it, in 2022, it's not okay for a white man to, to do a Maya Angelou impression. If it's funny, you can get away with it. If it's funny, you can do it. You know this. Greetings. John, well, you know, thank you, very <laughs> thank you very much, Ron, for the call. Thank you. It's basically based on her poem that she did for Clinton's inauguration, that beautiful poem on the pulse of morning. Everything I say is, is a reference to that That's poem because so it's the only one I know. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> so I always work in the phrase older than the master. <laughs> Let me go to another call. Uh, David in Nevada. Thanks for your patience. No problem, John. I'm just sitting back here just trying to keep my shit down. But hey, Okay. I find last... keeping it down works best for me. <laughs> yeah, but last night, loved it. Loved the way that the production was done. And the I hearings. don't even like to say a production. I like to call it. It was the prosecution's opening statement. Yes, I agree. That's what they were doing last night. See, people ain't getting hip on the way that things were, the way they rolled this out. Like Liz Cheney, mm-hmm. when she said, you know, Donald Trump will be gone. But my GOP partners, oh, your your sedition going to stay with you forever. She telling them, I might not get reelected, but I ain't going to jail. Right on. Yeah. You know, and, and then when you pick through the little things that was that they were bringing out, like with the uh, docu- documentarian, the yeah. French guy there, See, <laughs> they had him there because he was hanging out with them. Because we all remember January 4th, these same individuals from our congressmen were getting tours throughout that. Deal. Like you said, Eric. Yep. They were. They were getting tours. And then what did he say? Even before Trump got speech started, what? They was going around doing everything. This was like military style. Who was Trump's homeboy that was 
that got military experience on doing this shit. Good old Michael Flynn. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of heroes. Yeah, you're right, man. And then when I looked at uh, uh, the way that they broke it down in this seven part thing that they was doing, and like with Ivanka, the little 14 seconds they put out there, they said, look, we just giving you a taste. We ain't showing you because we had Ivanka in there probably for an hour or two hours talking to her. Right. She's spilling the beans. Okay, because she, they said what? Trump's family members, other people were constantly going to him and telling me, call this off, call this off. And as far as that bullshit with Fox News not showing it, you know, it reminds me of the saying of like, you know, you're a bank robber. Mm hmm. But you got a blind man as your lookout. Love it. (laughs) David, (laughs) thank you so much. I really appreciate the call. You know that right now Trump is like saying to his aides, wait, what's Tiffany's number? I have another blonde daughter. What's her birthday? (laughs) It's her birthday soon. Tell me, Tiffany, you want to sit on daddy's lap? Totally shifting gears. I just a pop culture question. Have you guys been back to the movies yet since pandemic began? Not yet. I've seen really? a couple. I saw West Side Story in the theater because I wanted to, yeah. you know, but I, I wasn't a big movie theater goer even before the pandemic. I had sort of gotten used to watching everything on streaming. Right. Right. I also, mean, movie theaters in New York City are kind of gross. I lo- I'm, I'm always going to love movie theaters. I live with a kid, so I went to see all the Marvel movies. Which one? Which one do you go to? Which theater? Uh, I go all over. And now I live near the Magic Johnson Cinemas in Harlem. Oh, that's those are actually nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I go. I've been to quite a few, and you know, but mainly, mainly just action films that that he's into. Uh, I haven't gone to any grown. Like I wanted to see West Side Story, but I'm here at night, and I got a kid. I've been to a ton of Broadway shows. I've seen a couple. A couple that of has been a, the greatest joy of the shutdown ending for me, and not to sound like a total fag, <laughs> it was be able being able to see Broadway musicals again. I took Charmy to go to the David Byrne show for her birthday, and let me tell you, it was like, oh my god, life is coming back. How cool! It was. I wonderful. didn't get to see that. I'm taking Henry to his first concert next week. We're going to go see Paul McCartney. Our our state's in an orange zone, but I'm going to go sit in a stadium with fifty thousand people. Amazing. Where's yeah. he playing? At Giant Stadium or oh, whatever wow. they call it now. Oh, Do you life. know what I just yeah. saw that it was surprisingly great? Was the Michael Jackson and musical MJ really someone gave me a free ticket I would not have spent money <laughs> on it but it is really good it is so smart the way they did it because they focused on the making of w- the, the production of one of his concert tours mm. that's how you do it they, they just took that one moment like Spielberg's Lincoln you take what if you, yes. if you try to do their whole life it's going to just be and then this happened if you take one instance of a person's life you can tell their whole life story and they had flashbacks they go back to his childhood a few times they go back to off the wall but any kid touching in there so (laughs) so I'll tell you what how much do they bury the lead (laughs) there's quite a a bit about his drug use which Mm. surprised me because again the estate had to approve every word in this show so there's a lot about the drug use and then there's a couple references to the accusations Mm. they never say what he's being accused of yeah. But they also, the show does not take a position on whether he's innocent or guilty, which again, I, I admired. And the choreography, it's going to win the Tony for best choreography on Sunday. It is unbelievable dancing. So it's enough to make you feel dirty when you leave, but you're still dancing when you <laughs> I leave. didn't feel dirty. I enjoyed it. And the, the cast is so good. I, I saw the understudy it. and he was amazing. Hmm. Eric, have you seen any art or, or shows or concerts no, or comics that have inspired you during this time? No, I just now I'm just so into TV shows. I'm done with movies. Like what? Like what's turned well, you on? Well, recently you're going to like this one because I'm not even a big Star Wars guy, but that Obi-Wan Obi- Kenobi. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. A good show. It's so moving. Wow. Because they did something smart. He's He's older now. 
and he doesn't believe in himself anymore, mm-hmm. and he's burned out, and it's all about you know how Obi got his groove back. Yeah, and it's that they're hunting down uh, Jedi. They, they found a way to give it a like. There's a plot, but they found a way to give it a story of like for everyone, you know. Oh, 17 years later, and oh, who who believes in himself after two years of lockdown? And <laughs> here's this guy we all grew up with, and he learns to believe in himself again when he's given up. That it shows so good that at the beginning they showed clips of like Phantom Menace and stuff like that. Yeah, just clips. It, it almost made those movies look good. I'm like watching. I'm like, oh, maybe those movies aren't so bad. The third one's not bad. It's the third not one's quite real? a good film. Really, it's all fun. Right. It's a fun movie. Yeah. Okay, I totally loved it too. I agree. What Obi Wan? I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, that and that and the boys. That's the uh, is that good? Oh, that show. What's the boys? That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, There's a lot of boys in it. Speaking <laughs> of Michael Jackson. Yeah, I'm not a superhero guy. It's a, just a show on uh, oh, yes. Amazon Prime. It's actually I have heard that that's quite homoerotic. Yeah, I think there's some. You I know think you could show, find something. You know there. what show I binge watched? I tried to every season. Uh, it's a streaming show, uh, uh, Pornhub. That's what I got into. <laughs> in the, uh, uh, kind of redundant. Kind of redundant. Yeah. For a couple of seasons, it's all male actors. <laughs> I, I, after about thirty hours, I had to bail. Uh, okay, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Can I just praise the head coach of the Washington Commanders? Sure. Um, Yesterday, Jack Del Rio, who's the coach, just called the Capitol riot a dust-up. He said, look at the violence of those Black Lives Matter protests. Well, today, Washington Commanders, which used to be the Redskins, the most racist team in sports, the last NFL team to desegregate, and President Kennedy had to force them to in 1961, Head coach Ron Rivera released a statement and fined Jack Del Rio $100,000. All the money will go to the U.S. Capitol Police Memorial Fund. And the statement, when you consider, this is from the head coach of the Redskins, okay, which is now called the Commanders, but the most racist franchise. This morning I met with Coach Del Rio to express how disappointed I am with his comments. As we saw last night in the hearings, what happened on the Capitol on January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism. A group of citizens attempted to overturn the results of a free and fair election, and as a result, lives were lost and the Capitol building was damaged. Coach Del Rio did apologize for his comments. He understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests. Now here it comes. He has the right to have opinions, and and, and there's the consequences. I also want to make it clear, our organization, 
This was used to be called the Redskins. Mm-hmm. Our organization will not tolerate any equivalency between those who demanded justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the actions of those on January 6th who sought to topple our government. And he fined his own coach six figures and gave it all to the Capitol cops. That's amazing. Amazing. He when, should run for Congress. When jocks lead the way. Yep. Kaepernick, when we see this, when Kerr, when when jocks are leading the way morally. Yep. We live to see it.